yeah, so this uh, this sort of general problem of the individual, yeah, it takes on these different forms throughout history, like we saw um, in the opposition between um, Plato and Aristotle. Uh, he talks about this problem of the integration of the individual in the whole uh, and the, the different answers that Plato and, and Aristotle give to, to that problem. Uh, and then, um, uh, and that's sort of like a, a, a component of the bigger problem of uh, reconciling uh, the order of simultaneity and the order of succession uh, or being and becoming. Uh, and, and so I think all of these oppositions or all of these um, different problems are all supposed to fit together to, um, to sort of form a, a, a general problem of the individual that he's trying to solve. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, one other thing that stuck out to me was the the discussion of in the introduction when he says that the pre-individual is not um, can't be described and can't be understood in terms of principle of identity or principle of uh, non-contradiction. Um, I guess one other one place we've seen that so far is in the in the uh, discussion of the Eastern and Western heresies and early Christianity. That was kind of an interesting parallel. Yeah, that's, um, I think, like, a lot of the sort of um, the groups that ended up becoming heretical, like, of course, it was a sort of uh, um, a process, uh, uh, like, it wasn't, um, the, the distinction between orthodoxy and heresy is, is a, a sort of result of um, this complicated conflict between the different parties, but what a lot of the different heresies share is um, uh, a sort of... Um, insistence on the principle of non-contradiction um, and and uh, this kind of um, uh, holding on to, like, trying to eliminate contradictions by holding on to one side of this opposition, like um, Christ is either fully human or fully divine, and he has to be one or the other, he can't be both at the same time. Um, and uh, so the these uh these are various attempts to eliminate contradictions and uh and make christianity into a consistent doctrine whereas the orthodox theory or the orthodox doctrine um sort of holds on to these contradictions uh and and keeps them like keeps both sides of the contradiction uh in in effect at the same time and uh and so that it's a more difficult um intellectual position to to occupy or to uh, hold on to, um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's sort of how the, the principle of non-contradiction plays out in relation to the uh, the the heresies. Right. Um, okay. Well, maybe we can get started. Uh, I think maybe we'll do a little bit shorter today. We'll see how long it goes. But uh, I um, I think I want to stop at the beginning of the early modern section, um, and and then we'll pick up the early moderns next time. Um, just for uh, the sake of finding a good uh, stopping point. Um, the section on Descartes is pretty long, so maybe we can stop uh, just before that. Um, okay, so let me get the bot going, and, and we'll start. Okay, so this is our uh, Simon Don reading group. Um, we're continuing on Individuation, Volume 2, uh, the text, History of the Notion of the Individual. We're still in the medieval era, um, so we last time we looked at the 13th century um, and some of the different positions that came up in the 13th century. Um, I think, well, 
I mean, this era is a, an era that I know very little about um, and almost entirely secondhand. So uh, I don't have a lot of uh, sort of commentary to make on on this. But um, I think what we saw last time was this opposition between um, uh, Saint Thomas, uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas, and um, his his notion of the individuation of the intellect, um, or or this sort of non-individuation of the intellect, the the intellect, um, the uh, the intellect is uh, is a pure form, and so it's not individuated because uh, the individuation of entities has to do with the matter that fills the form. Uh, so, like a particular horse is the the form of the horse as such, plus the matter that makes it, you know, x centimeters tall and you know this exact color and so on. Um, and and so it's these accidental qualities that uh, particularize the the form and, and make it into an, an actual individual, um, whereas the intellect is uh, because it's this pure form, it it doesn't have these accident uh, these accidents that make it into um, into uh, an individual, and and so he also a sort of consequence of this is that um, because angels are pure forms, they are um, individuated or distinguished from each other in the same way that species are from each other as opposed to as individuals. So each angel is a, a species of one. Um, and uh, uh, so this is a, a sort of well-known doctrine of Aquinas. Um, and this notion of the intellect as um, sort of non-individuated is one that uh, caused a lot of controversy because uh, because it comes into conflict with the Christian doctrine of the personal survival of the soul or the personal immortality. Um, so, if if the the intellect is the only aspect of the soul that is um, sort of um, uh, that that, or if the intellect is what is sort of most immediately um, immortal or that survives death, as as Aquinas also holds, um, then uh, and the intellect is also what is non-individual within the soul then it starts to become hard to understand how uh, the soul as a personal entity, as, you know, my soul and not just the intellect as such, um, survives death and, and then can be subject to judgment after death and so on. Um, and so there were some uh, uh, um, church officials who, um, uh, and the Inquisition in particular, condemned certain doctrines of Averroes and... Um, uh, the Averroist school, um, and it's not clear to what extent this is actually directed at Averroes as such. But it was uh, Averroes was sort of taken as the um, uh, symbol of of like um, atheism or or of a doctrine that would deny the uh, the immortality of the soul. And uh, uh, and then we also saw um, following this, we saw uh, uh, Duns Scotus who. Um, has a, a different doctrine of um, individuation compared to Aquinas. Uh, in particular, he he holds that there's um, what he calls the liquidity or the hexiety of an entity. Um, so uh, Socrates has um, a, a particular uh, essence, or you know, Socrateity, or what makes him Socrates, or uh, this horse has. The particularity that makes it, it this horse. There's a, a thisness to every entity, uh, and and this is something that um, that is uh, 
something distinct from the the species. So there's there's the horse as such that um, the horse belongs to, and then there's the this thisness of this horse here. Uh, and uh, and also what goes along with this is um, a primacy of the will in in the sphere of ethics. Um, as opposed to uh, an, uh, an idea of the intellect or the understanding as being primary um, um, in, in more traditional ethical theories. Uh, so it's not that we um, have a, a knowledge of the good and then act in accordance with that knowledge. Instead, it's the will that is primary uh, in both in the human individual and in God. So it, it's God's divine will that... Uh, you know, brings about the creation of the world and uh, all of the um, the sort of structure of the world follows from this divine will. Uh, oh yes, and and so Angus has posted a um, um, important uh, question or comment here about um, uh, this notion of hexity that Scotus uh, um, introduces uh, is also distinct from the idea of a material accident. Um, so it's not it's not just uh, so like in in Aquinas's theory we have the uh, the form, which is sort of filled out by the matter that that individualizes that form, uh, whereas here in Scotus's theory we have uh, an account where this quiddity or or hexity is a, a sort of um, uh, individualization or this sort of immediate individualization of the entity. It's not just a combination of form and matter that makes that sort of individualizes the form. It's it's uh, there is a, a an individual essence of the entity or an individual nature of the entity. Uh, so yes, it's it's a, a different doctrine than Aquinas's doctrine. Uh, okay, so that's what we saw last time. Um, let's pick up from the uh, beginning of the 14th century. Yeah, Angus, do you want to go ahead and read? The 14th century. However, this primacy of the will leads to a consequence in opposition to the starting point. This consequence is developed particularly by Thomas Bradwardine. There is no causality other than divine causality. There is no, quote, necessary reason or law in God prior to his will, unquote. And, quote, the divine will is the efficient cause of everything, whatever it may be, the driving cause of all movement. The consequence of this manner of envisioning is that the freest act that man can undertake is necessitated by God. Quote, man is God's serf, a spontaneous and unconstrained serf. This theory of the unfree will is represented in the 14th century by John of Mir. Mir Miracor, who teaches at the University of Paris, even when it does not end up explicitly denying the fact that human freedom supposes free will, this theological determinant nevertheless leads to making it considered as, quote, the lowest degree of freedom, unquote, according to the expression Descartes will use. We should note that from this point on, theological determinism constitutes a doctrine that can be opposed for long periods of time to the doctrine that makes freedom constitute an individual, consist in individual free will. Individual free will indeed makes choice possible, and choice can be made between pre-existing and determined terms. Conversely, the freedom of an individual submitted to an unfree will is the fact of continuing to act in the path in which it is determined to act or stop. Stopping is not a choice, no more than no more so than action. It therefore seems paradoxical that man is most profoundly creative not in choice, supposing free will, but in action, through which he acts according to God and in the condition of unfree will. There is a possible transi transition from theological determinism to determinism through character and destiny. It is therefore possible to grasp in Duns Scotus a manner of conceiving the individual that will lead not just to the conception of John Wycliffe and then of Luther, 
but also to that of Descartes and perhaps to certain aspects of the thought of Rousseau and Maine de Guillaume. Nevertheless, for a new conception of the individual to become possible, there would need to be a reform of all metaphysics, particularly in the case of the theory of knowledge. This reform begins with the Dominican uh, Durandus of saint Poisson, who declares sensible and intelligible species to be fictive. Uh, the active intellect is also declared to be fictive. The universal only differs from the individual in the way that the undetermined differs from the determined. The universal only arises from a certain manner of considering the sensible image by not taking account of what it is, what is individual in it. The problem of individuation consequently becomes a false problem because it supposes that the species exists before the individual. If this interiority of existence is no longer supposed, if nothing but what is individual exists, it is no longer necessary to ask what individualizes the species. Nominalism therefore leads to a new position of the problem of individuality. That which is individual is the first object of our knowledge. This new attitude is still found in the Franciscan Petrus uh, Aureolus, author of the Commentariorum Sententiarum. Quote, it is nobler to know an individual and designated reality than to know it in an abstract and universal way. The soul knows the thing not through a species, which is an intermediary, but through an essay intentionale, or forma specularis, which are knowledge knowledge's own object produced in the intellect by things thereby constituting impressions these impressions are the thing itself present in the mind based on what is currently visible of the former for the latter knowledge of species and knowledge of genus are only due to the differences of clarity and distinction of the impression genus corresponds to the least degree of perfection the progress of knowledge goes from the universal to the singular which means from the confused to the clear and distinct for knowledge, uh, for knowledge, the individual is the principle of perfection. However, it could be supposed that the hierarchy of the degrees of being follows the hierarchy of degrees of perfection. So this seems like another iteration of nominalism, where the clearer the impression of kind of a, an object of knowledge, the more individual that object will be. So it's sort of like a like a blurrier impression is what would give knowledge of the genus uh, or the species as opposed to the individual. Yeah, this is a, a sort of further development of the Aristotelian doctrine of um, knowledge of universals. Uh, so, I mean, for Aristotle, uh, of course, the individual um, substance is the, the primary reality, uh, and then universals are uh, the results of some sort of uh, comparison of, of individual substances. Um, and so we, we learn um, the universal horse by comparing different horses and extracting what is common to all of them. And, and so this account here is um, sort of a, a further um, development of, of that version. Uh, and it, it holds that um, it's not just that uh, we don't have this sort of intellectual process of grasping the, the, the essence of the entity, the essence of the horse, uh, um, like we do in Aristotle, we instead have a sort of um, an almost an automatic process where um, the impressions sort of get mixed or confused, and uh, um, it's it's these confused perceptions or confused uh, impressions that constitute knowledge of the universals. Uh, and um, and here we um, we see the the progress of knowledge is uh, sort of the opposite. Um, 
the opposite order from the way it's presented in Aristotle. So instead of um, having knowledge of a of sensible things and then uh, performing a, a, an operation of generalization or abstraction and extracting universals from them, we instead have this confused knowledge of universals. Uh, and then as our knowledge progresses, we get more and more uh, particularized knowledge uh, and eventually, or in, in the ideal case, we end up with knowledge of, a, of an individual. Uh, so yeah, it's a form of nominalism, but um, in contrast to uh, in contrast to the sort of Aristotelian nominalism uh, or earlier nominalism that um, that still had a role for the intellect as uh, grasping the essence of an entity uh, and and then performing acts of generalization. So here it's it's a a kind of automatic process. And there's also um, the earlier bit about the uh, the nature of the will. Um, and Simondon presents the, the sort of theory of knowledge stuff as being a consequence or, or as being uh, required to make sense of this doctrine of the will. Um, I'm not sure I really grasped the connection between the two, but um, this, this doctrine of the will uh, as being unfree, as being um, uh, the, the human will uh, is uh, sort of... Um, acted by God. Uh, so all of our actions are brought about by God. Um, and there's no such thing as a, a human free will that would um, be distinct from God's will. Um, and this this was a, um, and, and so um, Simon Don points out that this sort of leads towards uh, some of the um, uh, doctrines of, of Protestant authors, um, according to which there's uh, a sort of uh, election of Certain individuals, certain individuals are chosen by God to be saved, uh, and then others are chosen by God to be damned. Um, and uh, our own actions are are just a, a sort of result of God's deci- decision to uh, save or or damn us. And there's, there's no such thing as free will that um, can bring about salvation or damnation for us. Um, so this this is obviously a very um, uh, difficult doctrine to to hold. Um, it uh, it makes human action um, uh, in effect just a, a consequence of God's action, and uh, and it makes um, it makes our um, our action irrelevant from a moral point of view um, because it's already decided whether we're going to be saved or damned. Uh, and I should also bring up here um, that Simon Don doesn't talk about this, but um, this notion of um, uh, God as acting through man or um, as the human will um, as being uh, a part of the divine will or a consequence of the divine will. Um, this doctrine has an important uh, or raises an important problem, which is the problem of evil, um, which... Uh, um, so in, in this doctrine, the formula we take in this doctrine is that if if God is the the ultimate uh, uh, agent in all of our actions, if if it's ultimately God who is acting through us, um, then every action, every evil action, is brought about by God, uh, and and so there's um, every you know terrible catastrophe or you know horrible action that you can think of uh, that throughout history 
is something that God did. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's hard to understand why we shouldn't um, uh, attribute the evil of these actions to God uh, in this, under this theory. And so you have to come up with some sort of explanation of how um, uh, either God is not responsible for the evil or the evil is part of a, a bigger plan uh, or something like that. Uh, some sort of explanation of why um, why there is uh, what seems to be evil in the world if everything is brought about by God. Okay, so let's go on to the next section. Um, I can read this. It's a short one. Let's see. Yeah, I'll read the next two sections because they're both short. Okay, William of Ockham. William of Ockham systematizes this doctrine by first showing that if the universal existed in itself, it would be an individual, which is contradictory. The universal cannot explain the singular, for it can only duplicate singular beings and not explain them. To put the universal into singular things, whereby the mind would extract it through abstraction, is to render it individual. These arguments recall those we already find in the critique that Aristotle wields against the separate idea in Plato. But the reasoning itself also reaches Aristotle's doctrine. For William of Ockham, universals are in the significations of a word, intensio animae, conceptus animae, passio animae, will of the soul, conception of the soul, affection of the soul. Universals are signs or significations. They are neither in words nor in things. Universals replace the very things that they designate in the proposition. Universals are therefore defined by their usage in knowledge. The problem of universals is no longer a problem of nature, but a problem of function, of usage. The origin of this doctrine is found in Abelard. It supposes that active relation has the value of being. It is in fact quite different from considering universals as a pure flatus focus and from considering them as images that will indifferently represent any of the singular things contained in their extension and that will be able to replace them just as the sign replaces the thing signified. Universals are not things, but the relations between signs are veritable relations just as much as the relations between things. One can act with universals as the algebraic mathematician acts with his abstract symbols suponere pro ipsis rebus, standing for the things themselves. One of the most important consequences of this new theory of knowledge is that the primitive knowledge of singular things, which is veritable knowledge, attains through intuition either sensible things or, quote, certain intelligible things that do not fall under any, uh, any meaning at all, such as intellections, the act of the will, joy, sadness, and these types of things which man can experience to be in him, unquote. Alongside outer experience, which reveals the sensible to us, Inner experience reveals the intelligible to us. This is a whole new domain of reality, i.e. the world internal to the individual insofar as he is aware of it by way of inner intuition, which is revealed here with its process of knowledge and its qualification. The dignity of individual reality not only consists in the fact that the individual is subject to the internal and external experiences that found knowledge. This dignity also consists in the fact that the internal reality of the individual becomes an object of knowledge through intuition, whereas the questions of metaphysics are beyond the reach of our reason. In some sense, metaphysics becomes the knowledge of realities internal to the individual. Nicolas of Autrecourt. The critique of Aristotle's physics and metaphysics is pursued in the teaching of Nicolas of Autrecourt through the examination of the notions of causality and substance. The link of causality is no longer the close relative of the link of identity, since causality cannot be conceived as the production of the similar by the similar. Becoming is an unconnected succession of moments. The same critique is applicable to the notion of substance. There is no subject of the appearances given by the senses that can be known intuitively or discursively. The conclusion is important for the doctrine of man qua individual. Quote, I am certain with evidence only of the objects of my senses and of my acts. End quote. The subject is aware of his existence through acts. Cartesian thought is not opposed to this way of contemplating the knowledge of the subject in his isolation 
thereby avoiding any question concerning individuation because the reality of the subject is initially grasped strictly via the conditions of knowledge as individualized. No doubt this point of view poses the, question, the critical problem, but it is important to realize that this reflection on the knowledge of the subject starts with C.J. Brabant and that there was already with him a simultaneously logical and ontological aspect characteristic of this set of arguments. Quote, everything that appears to us is merely dream and simulacrum such that we are not certain of the existence of anything, unquote. This proposition pertains to the impossibilia whose demonstration can be provided through logical play. It is not the senses themselves which mere, merely give us appearances, but another faculty alone that can judge if these appearances are true. This reasoning has a Cartesian aspect. It is completed by Nicolas of Autrecourt, who goes to the point of attacking the notion of the faculties of the soul, asserting that we do not have the right to conclude from the act of will to the existence of will. This thesis leads to considering the individual subject as a first term, that does not require any explication and is the source and foundation of all knowledge and every action. Nevertheless, one principle of Aristotle's philosophy remained to be fought against to, to guarantee the primacy of the individual as cause. Quote, everything that is moved is moved by something else, unquote. According to this principle, movement, not just in its initial moment, but in each of its successive moments, is produced by the mover that contains in act that which, in the moved, is in the process of being realized. One thing that I... Sorry, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was going to say really quick, uh, the... I was reading that um, book on the history of the individual in like the early modern period. And in the introduction, um, the person who compiled the essays said that in the medieval period, there was this kind of subordination of epistemology to ontology because the alternative would be, um, you know, a kind of epistemological, the possibility of a question as to the knowledge of the existence of God. But it seems like there may be, at least in uh, Nicholas of Autrecourt um, and maybe some of these other thinkers, there is more of an emphasis on this, um, like the, the doubtfulness of, of, I guess, starting with the, um, the valorization of the will at the expense of the intellect, the kind of uh, skepticism as to the possibility of reasoning our way to um, knowledge of things and also as to the accuracy of sense data um, that I don't know if, if that would have been possible in the earlier uh, medieval stuff. We were yeah, that's a, it's a good point. Um, so there's a, a certain tendency in, in some history of philosophy to sort of skip over the medieval period and then have Descartes appear as, as if out of nowhere, um, as if, you know, he just sort of... Um, has a, a clean slate and, and just um, comes out of nowhere with his epistemological uh, formulation of, of philosophy. Um, and we see here, um, I mean, again, this is stuff that I only know secondhand, but uh, we see here that there are medieval thinkers who are already um, very concerned with epistemology and with the possibility of knowledge of God, with the possibility of knowledge of the uh, empirical uh, of empirical reality, um, and uh, who who come up with formulations that are quite similar to Descartes um, in certain respects, and uh, um, yeah, so especially with um, Nicolas of Autrecourt, um, we have this uh, uh, starting with, starting with the individual as the the uh, beginning of knowledge, the individual subject, uh, and so there's no. There's no problem of individuation in the way that there was earlier. Um, there's no question of, you know, what is it that makes the individual into an individual? Uh, because you start immediately with the 
um, the individual subject as the the sort of presupposition of knowledge, uh, and and it's that individual starting point um, that uh, that uh, is the basis of the rest of philosophy. So uh, the whole formulation of the problem of the individual is transformed, as, as we'll see uh, probably later today when we get to the beginning of the early modern period, um, that uh, as opposed to um, sort of trying to figure out what is it that that makes an individual into an individual, um, you know, starting from something that is not an individual and then trying to account for the individuation of that reality. Um, we instead start with the the individual subject as the the basis for philosophy, and then uh, you know from that starting point, then we try to get outwards, get to get to knowledge of the world and knowledge of God. Uh, and then we also have uh, going back um, to William of Ockham. Um, so this is again his doctrine is uh, again um, uh, well, it's it's not quite nominalism because it's it's sometimes called conceptualism in uh, in uh, you know, history of philosophy texts. Um, so he holds that uh, universals are only um, are only in the intellect. Um, so so there's no such thing as the as the the form of the horse as such. But instead, we uh, when we uh, grasp uh, uh, the the horse, or when we when we um, think of a horse, we um, we our intellect is capable of grasping um, a certain aspect of the entity um, of, of this horse and sort of uh, grasping it as a horse, um, so putting it into a, a certain category. Uh, and so it's only in the soul, in the intellect, that that there is such a thing as a universal. There's no such thing as a universal as something distinct from the intellect or distinct from the human soul. Uh, but this, it's it's... Kind of a subtle difference, but it's not quite the same thing as as nominalism, according to which um, universals uh, have only a, a verbal existence. So there's no such thing as universals. There's only universal names of of entities. Um, uh, so in this doctrine, universals are are just uh, sort of fictions, uh, whereas in uh, Occam's doctrine, universals are um, concepts that exist in the soul or um, their categories through which we grasp entities. And uh, so Simon Don um, makes the comment here that this conceptualism sort of transforms the problem of individuation because um, now we, we uh, all of the problems of metaphysics of, you know, the relation between various uh, intellectual concepts, they all become sort of internal to the soul, uh, internal to the intellect. Uh, and uh, so it's it's a question of um, how these different concepts are related to each other, as opposed to um, trying to grasp the essence of entities as uh, as they are outside the intellect. Um, and and so it, this whole sort of realm of the internal uh, begins to open up. And and this, of course, with Descartes is, is sort of uh, privileged as the realm of philosophy, um, uh, where we have this um, strict distinction between. Uh, physics as the realm of uh, external reality, uh, the, the science that, that treats of external reality of extension, uh, and then philosophy, which treats of the, the inner realm of the soul. Uh, so we see here sort of the prefiguration of that distinction um, where metaphysics now is becoming uh, a science of uh, 
of the inner uh, science of what is contained in the soul. Uh, and then maybe one last point is um, the last bit in the section on Nicolas Sabotrecourt, um, this bit about motion. Um, we'll see more on this as we proceed today, but um, one of the um, sort of key principles that distinguish um, modern philosophy from medieval philosophy uh, and, and you know, philosophy in the broad sense, including um, science, uh, what became science, um, one of the, the sort of key principles is the doctrine of motion, uh, where uh, medieval philosophy as a whole, or in, in general, sticks to an Aristotelian conception of motion in which uh, there, there has to be um, uh, an agent of motion. There has to be something. Uh, so if motion is the transition from potentiality to actuality, there has to be something that is actual that brings about motion. So um, uh, motion includes uh, change of qualities as well, uh, as well as change of location. So if something is cold and becomes hot, there has to be something hot that brings about that, tra that transformation of, of uh, heating up. Uh, and likewise, if an entity is uh, at position A and moves to position B, then there has to be some uh, active entity in motion to bring about that change. Um, um, uh, right, yeah, so we have change of quantity, change of quality, and change of place. Uh, and then there's uh, generation and destruction, which um, he sometimes, I think, counts as kinds of motion and then sometimes not. Um, um, yeah. Um, uh, and then, um, yeah, so the, the medieval um, medieval philosophy as a whole sticks to this sort of account of motion. And in particular, what one of the consequences of this account of motion is that uh, an entity only remains in motion so long as there's something um, actual that is uh, maintaining that motion. Um, and so one of the problems of this conception was how to account for the, the movement of projectiles. Uh, so like a, an arrow or a cannonball or whatever. Um, so the, um, the, the action that brings about the motion is the, um, the, uh, rebound, the, the string in the bow, um, rebounding after being pulled, uh, for example, in the case of the arrow. Um, but then after the arrow leaves the bow, uh, it continues in motion for a certain amount of time before it eventually hits a target or lands or whatever. Um, and, and so the problem was to account for how, how the, the arrow stays in motion during the, its flight. Uh, and there were various theories of um, how the, the air sort of pushes it forward as it, um, as it flies through the air um, and, you know, various attempts to come up with uh, an account for um, the motion of projectiles. Uh, and then what happens in the modern era, as we'll see later today, is that um, there's a, a transition to an inertia account of motion so that motion continues until something stops it, until something brings about um, uh, uh, brings about the end of the motion. Uh, and so um, on, on this account, we don't need to sort of explain the, the motion of projectiles in this um, sort of artificial sense because we we just see the projectile is put in motion and then continues in motion until uh, until it hits something or until something uh, stops its motion uh, and and so there's a completely different uh, conception of motion that um, is uh, comes about in the transition from medieval philosophy to modern philosophy and we'll see a few different um, 
uh, versions of this new conception of motion uh, that that start to appear in the late medieval period. And then, and then the motion at the time, like uh, they only stopped by like exterior, external, external uh, factors, like not the. Uh, that's the idea that um, that very first at the beginning of the uh, uh, idea, like um, when when it first like uh, generated the the motion is only only controlled by the external factors. Yes, that's right. So in the in the modern conception of motion um, uh, that we see starting, well, Galileo is sort of um, the culmination of this um, this account of motion. But uh, in this modern account of motion. Uh, an entity continues in motion as long as it doesn't encounter something that um, stops that motion or, or changes that motion. Uh, so, um, of course, this is an idealization because in uh, in our everyday experience, we have uh, you know air resistance and friction and so on that that um, cause motion to come to a halt eventually. But um, the idea is that in a vacuum, um, you would have. Uh, continued motion uh, indefinitely, uh, sort of the internal principle of motion would continue without change uh, forever. Uh, it's only something external that can bring about a, a change in the direction of motion or or stop the motion. Yeah, uh, okay, thank you. Right, um, so let's go on to the next section. If someone else would like to read, we'll just read the one section because the next one is um, a little bit longer. Is that is that John, John Britton? Yes. Jean yes. Britton? Yeah, would you like to read that one for us? Okay. Jim Burden or Zhang Buhidan? Which one? Jim Burden? Zhang uh, Buhidan. Zhang Buhidan, okay. With Buhidan, this principle with all the metaphysical consequences it entails is replaced by the first formulation of the principle of inertia. Movement is not perpetually sustained and maintained by a celestial intelligence. Movement is due to an impetus that is communicated by the mover to the thing moved. This impetus is a certain power, or, in the vocabulary of modern physics, a certain kinetic energy that makes the mobile capable of continuing to move by itself in the same direction. This impetus is all the more important as the speed with, the, with which the mover is moved by moved increases. The movement would go go on indefinitely if it were not impeded by the resistance of air and gravity. If these circumstances did not exist, this impediment would not occur, and movement would go on indefinitely. This is the case for the movement of uh, celestial bodies, which consequently leads to the useful, uselessness, use, use, uh, uselessness of the moving intelligences in any special sense by God. Down, the movement of the heaven can be assimilated to the movement of projectiles, which with the principle of inertia establishes the unity of mechanics and replaces the theory of natural places, including its corollaries, i.e. the fitness of the finitis, finite, uh, finite, uh, finiteness of the world and geocentrism. A study like the uh, one Albert Saxony Conducts on falling bodies along with a hypothesis like the one he formulates relative to the, immo Im the immobility of the heavens and to the earth movement. Following the footsteps of the author of the, the Timaeus, 
Timaeus, John Scottus, Eriugena, and L. Arbatus Magnus shows that the new spirit brings about in the sciences a veritable decentering of the subject of vital appearances and vulgar knowledge. The reflective individual will no longer uh, be the center of the world, privileged in his dignity, but due to this decentering, he will get to become the author of an objective knowledge he will conduct, construct. The paradoxical aspect of notion of the individual is also revealed on this point. The individual loses his geocentric and anthropocentric dignity, but he becomes the being who depends only on himself. The twofold situation of man and the world noted by Pascal is already beginning to blossom in this 14th century critique of Aristotelian physics. The study of the individual's participation in a superior reality holds moments when the human individual becomes aware of his self-creative power, particularly in the sciences. Undoubtedly, certain errors persist that reduce the fruitfulness of the principles of the new physics. For example, Bourdieu and uh, Albert, Albert, Albert of Saxony, the principle of inertia is not accompanied by the principle according to which everybody, with a certain speed yet exempt from the, the action of any force, continues its movement indefinitely in a straight line at the same speed. These two authors thought that if a body began to undergo the beginning of circular movement, it would continue the circular movement when the forces are stopped. Yet, the mode of new knowledge with its main hypothesis was defined, and its par paradigmatic role began to become more widespread. These new methods are even more clearly evident in Nicole Ohasmus, Commentaire au Livre du Ciel et du Monde. He invents the coordinate systems that were later be named Cartesian, and he provides the precision of the low falling bodies later verified Galileo. Stuff here, right? Yeah, that's good. Thanks. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of anticipated a little bit on this section, but yeah, so here we see the the beginnings of this transformation from the medieval Aristotelian conception of motion to the modern conception of motion. So this notion of impetus is um, is sort of the key in, in this transition um, where uh, impetus means um, it, it, it's something that's transmitted to the moved object from its uh, the cause of motion from the mover. Um, so, uh, and, and then uh, an object uh, preserves that impetus until something else acts against it to, to stop it or to uh, change its direction of motion. So um, an arrow in flight will um, has a it, it receives an impetus from the string of the bow, uh, and then uh, it will continue in flight uh, as long as um, as long as it can um, uh, until uh, the resistance of the air and the action of gravity cause it to um, fall to the ground or to uh, or until it hits a target. Um, and so here we have a completely um, different conception of, of uh, physics uh, because it um, uh, it sort of eliminates the whole doctrine of the um, natural places of entities. Uh, so in, in Aristotle, um, the motion of entities is either violent or natural. So a stone falling to the ground is a natural motion because the natural place of the stone is uh, on the ground uh, or towards the center of the world. Um, whereas 
lifting a stone up from the ground or throwing a stone into the air is a violent motion. It, it's taking a stone from its natural place and, and moving it away from its natural place. Uh, and so uh, this whole doctrine uh, disappears with the notion of impetus because we no longer need to account for um, the, the motion of entities by the way that they um, are related to their place in the universe. Uh, we instead have this account of, of motion uh, brought about by impetus and uh, in particular in relation to um, celestial mechanics. Um, so they, the, these authors who bring, who introduce this notion of impetus, um, they, they hold, so this is uh, one point where they uh, are different from modern accounts of, uh, of motion, uh, like from Galileo onwards. So they hold that circular motion is, um, uh, is also brought about by an impetus. So, um, an entity can be set in circular motion in orbits around the earth or around the sun um, and will continue in circular motion indefinitely. And so there's no need for um, something like a, a, a soul of the world or some sort of intelligence to uh, keep the planets in motion and uh, keep them orbiting in their, in their orbits. Uh, it's just the, the impetus that um, set them in motion uh, you know, at the beginning of time or beginning of the solar system or whatever. Um, and, and that impetus continues indefinitely. Uh, and, and so it's a sort of um, desacralization, I guess we can say, of the, of the universe. So the universe is no longer understood in terms of um, the, uh, the order of, uh, of where entities belong or where they're supposed to be um, and uh, in accordance with an intelligence. Instead, we have um, a, a sort of impetus that, that brings about the, the emotions that we observe in the world. Yeah, and, and so we see that um, this primacy of circular motion. So for Aristotle, circular motion is the most perfect kind of motion because it returns to itself. It, uh, it's not, um, it, it sort of, uh, it's, it's, um, it, yeah, it returns to itself. It, it sort of brings about its its own continuation as opposed to uh, local motion in a straight line, which it depends on some sort of mover um, to bring it about. Uh, and and there's the famous doctrine of, of the unmoved mover um, who brings about the, the movement of the celestial spheres. Um, um, and uh, uh, the unmoved mover is a thought thinking itself um, and so there's a certain circularity or circular nature of this uh, thought that thinks itself uh, and um, it, it sort of makes sense or, or there's a, an analogy with the circular mo movement of the heavens and the circular motion of thought. Uh, but these are some of the most obscure passages in Aristotle. So it's not, um, uh, it's definitely a, a problem uh, to understand exactly what that doctrine of the unmoved mover um, consists in. Um, and we see here that this notion of the circular movement as um, as primary or as uh, uh, having uh, an important uh, ontological status is preserved, even though we have a, uh, a significant transformation of Aristotelian physics with this notion of impetus, uh, they still preserve the notion of uh, circular motion as being uh, something uh, that has uh, a sort of uh, ontological primacy um, that uh, is it's not uh, whereas in in uh, contemporary physics or in uh, modern physics circular motion is always the product of um, multiple forces um, it's it's the result of 
different forces that lead to circular motion as opposed to something something simple and uh, uh, immediate like it is in in this physics. I thought this point about the how the reflective individual is no longer the center of the world, uh, privileged in his dignity due to the decentering that is caused by this kind of uh, new, I guess, conception of the natural world in um, natural philosophy. I thought this was interesting. Um, obviously, like the decentering is in part the, the need for geocentrism with a philosophy of um, natural place. But I think there's also maybe, um, I don't know, a kind of understanding that uh, there there's something that's kind of immediately intuitive about the Aristotelian conception of uh, of motion as, I mean, it just the way that the world is kind of uh, becomes intelligible in the first place. Like it, it makes sense to say that fire rises because it wants to rise and stones fall because they want to fall. And so it's not just the like literal decentering of, of the universe by considering the earth not to be the center of the universe, but also a kind of decentering of maybe like the immediate intelligibility of the world. Um, and the, as we've talked about before, kind of the numerical identity of the way that things appear to us and the way that they actually are. Um, and a new conception of, of nature as, uh, not as, not as it immediately appears, I guess, and more, more mathematical maybe. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Aristotle's physics is a physics of common sense, um, in the sense that, um, when we observe motion in, in everyday life, in, in the terrestrial realm, motion only continues as long as there's something that sort of makes it continue, right? Like, um, if you, uh, uh, you know, like a, you take a, a marble or whatever, it, it, you push it, it rolls for a little while and then it stops. It doesn't continue indefinitely. Um, so this idea of indefinite motion through impetus um, is completely contrary to the, you know, the uh, observed reality of motion, which follows the Aristotelian um, sort of principles of physics. Uh, and uh, so... For Aristotle, you can just sort of observe the way entities move and um, uh, abstract from the individual processes of motion that you see to come up with these sort of general principles. And, and it's, there's a sort of um, continuity between observation and um, the, the intellectual principles that you come up with. Whereas uh, with starting with this impetus conception and even more so with Galileo and, and later um, there's a conception of the universe as um, potentially quite different than the common sense understanding that we have of it, um, and and so we we um, uh, there's what we see later in in modern philosophy with Galileo and, and Descartes is this conception of um, the world as as divided up into primary and secondary qualities. Um, so entities have primary qualities uh, in themselves. They have uh, extension, uh, like a, a certain size and shape and so on, uh, independently of whatever we might um, think about them or observe. But uh, they only have um, secondary qualities like color, taste, temp temperature, and so on, um, insofar as there's a, an observer who, who is affected in a certain way by that, that body. Uh, and, and so the world is sort of split up into 
two different realms uh, that are are very distinct from each other because entities uh, in themselves don't have any color, don't have any uh, taste or temperature or whatever. Um, it's only it's only because they affect uh, the human body uh, in various ways that they have something like a temperature or a color. Uh, and so this notion of impetus um, is sort of the beginning of that. It sort of drives a wedge between the um, experience of the world uh, that we have as just uh, agents that operate with sort of uh, a common sense understanding of, of the physics of um, medium-sized objects in uh, in a fluid like air. Um, and then the sort of uh, underlying uh, physics of uh, the 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 true nature of reality, which can be quite different from uh, that uh, apparent physics of uh, of uh, medium sized objects in a fluid. I uh, I just uh, uh, was uh, about to uh, say about the process of uh, rebellious thinking, like against like the uh, the uh, mainstream idea of th that time. Because like I just like the order of Foucault's like the order of what, what is it? What is it, the book? The order of the order of su subject of the, the objects. The order of things, right? The order of things, right? Right. The Foucault book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yes, order of things. Yeah. Yeah, just like uh, it's not really clear, but the how people uh try to like find some kind of new rules from the from the existing uh kind of I. Ideas. It, the point here, like uh, how like Bourdieu, like uh, <clears throat> came up with the idea from the analogy, like um, how he like could like the um, compare. I mean, similar, similar, similarity between the the heaven, the movement of heaven, and the projectile. They, they could be same, and then how it can be like accepted. Of course, it it, it have taken have been taken a lot of time by i mean in, in order to be taken by people but the, the very first point uh some people like Bhutan or other in the, at the end like uh, the person who uh, wrote the book it's 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 marvelous like uh these people like i mean kind of like created some different idea from the from the, the mainstream idea then and then kind of my question about the individuals, like uh, here, uh, explanation of the paradoxical aspect of the notion of individual, kind of it at this time, the individual, the individual was central, central figure of the whole kind of idea of the universe. Kind of was it God, like uh, the uh, which is a uh, put on the center uh, position of the whole universe. The universe is like became has become the center. I mean, take taken center point of the universe like in I mean later later time isn't it like how it's possible like the paradox the aspect of notion what it explains here is like uh, <clears throat> it seems like uh, it used to be uh, geocentric taken geocentric anthropocentric dignity but uh, after having kind of a new mode of ideas and then the individual that idea is like loses it's a kind of position that's what I read but i can't i can't totally understand this part because like, for me like god or heaven uh, the god is it seems like the the center position of that time as far as i understand is that wrong 
Right. Yeah. So there's a couple, a few things in in that uh, in those questions or those comments. Um, yeah. So I think you're right to say that this is um, a really um, sort of amazing idea to to look at projectiles and to look at the motion of the heavens and say these are actually the same kind of thing. Uh, to to say that um, both of them are brought about by something like impetus. Um, because this, so this this problem of the motion of projectiles was um, sort of an open one throughout medieval physics and medieval philosophy, um, and yeah, like there were there were attempts. Um, I forget who it was exactly. Um, certain um, uh, Arab philosophers um, who are sort of skipped over in this um, account of the history of philosophy, but they they had um, versions where um, the the motion of an arrow was brought about by um, the air uh, sort of pushing the the arrow along, so that it would the air would sort of divide in front of the arrow and then recirculate around the arrow and push it forward. Uh, and so there was always something in motion bringing about the motion of the arrow. Um, and and so th this was sort of one solution that was proposed to this problem, but it was a, a kind of open problem throughout the medieval period. And um, so we can see that this notion of impetus um, kind of uh, it has a, a sort of internal development within the Aristotelian tradition. So there's a, a problem that is already recognized by Aristotelian philosophers that leads to this notion of impetus. Um, but there's also sort of um, external factors that that lead to it eventually becoming uh, dominant in in modern physics. Um, so the, the the whole sort of Copernican revolution um, had to do uh, or came about in part because of uh, problems with calculating the date of Easter, actually, um, if I remember correctly. Uh, like Easter has to happen on, uh, I think it's the first Sunday after the vernal equinox or something like that. And uh, so you have to be able to calculate the vernal equinox. Um, and then um, uh, there were problems in the medieval period where the date of Easter was being miscalculated and so would appear uh, too early or too late or whatever. Um, and uh, this was in part because it was so difficult to work with the Ptolemaic system because you had the the circles of the of the planets around the sun and then you had these epicycles where each planet would, uh, or sorry, uh, the planets around the earth. Um, and then uh, uh, within the orbit of the planet, the, the planet would have its own sort of secondary circles that so the the planet would like move in these complicated circles within circles. Um, and uh, so calculating, you know, when exactly certain um, celestial phenomena would happen was quite difficult. And so the Copernican system uh, is introduced basically just as a simplification of the system uh, uh, to predict the, the, uh, the motions of the planets. Um, uh, but the consequence of this Copernican system is that you have to give an alternate account uh, you have to sort of completely reconstruct physics because if you're if you're um, if you say that the Earth is actually moving, uh, then you have to give some account of why you know why is it that we don't actually see that motion or or we don't feel like we're moving. The Earth feels like it's stable and and stationary, um, and why is it that um, uh, when you throw an object, it doesn't fly off? Uh, as, as the Earth moves away from it, and so on, um, you have to give a completely different account of of motion to um, to uh, account for the observed phenomena that that uh, sort of make the Earth seem like it's stationary. Um, 
And, and so this impetus theory sort of converges with the Copernican um, theory uh, with Galileo, who, who sort of completes this uh, transformation of physics. Um, and of course, he was quite controversial in his time um, uh, and ends up being condemned by the Inquisition and, and so on. Um, but uh, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a long process before this new physics becomes sort of recognized as being the correct one. Um, in uh, uh ha, ha, has a kind of like a, some kind of changes like um tremendous changes in the in that concept here individual is like a human individual right like not the god not god like individual as a human being it's like a, getting independent from the the influence of god something like that yeah there's um i think it's a very complicated transition in the notion of the individual because as we saw, as we've been seeing the past few weeks, um, there wasn't like a single um, universal doctrine of what the individual was throughout the medieval period. We had different um, sort of competing accounts of the individual. Um, so we have the, um, the Thomistic theory where um, the individual is, uh, individuation is brought about by material accidents that, um, uh, individuate a, a form, and then we have the uh, Scotus's theory, where we where there's this sort of immediate individuation of entities, this quiddity, um, and so there there are these multiple different theories that are trying to account for what it is that makes an individual into this individual. Uh, but what happens with the transition to the early modern period, as we'll see, uh, I think we should get to it today. Um, is that this whole set of problems or this whole um, set of competing theories is is transformed. So instead, we have this notion of uh, what well, Simon Dong will analyze it in terms of construction. Um, so the, the problem now is how, how to construct, um, uh, like starting from the individual human subject, um, how do we construct uh, entities like, uh, how do we construct our knowledge of uh, empirically given entities or our knowledge of God, um, uh, how do we sort of get outside the individual? So it's no longer a question of, um, you know, what is it that makes an individual into an individual? It's a question of, you know, starting from the human individual subject, how do we get outside of that subject? Um, so yeah, it's a transformation, not just of, um, particular ideas of what the individual is, but of the whole sort of set of problems or the set of questions about, you know, that, that are being asked about the individual. All right, thank you. Okay, so let's go on to, oh, actually, one one last bit before we uh, move forward is, is this, there's this one little sentence about um, uh, Nicole Oresme, or Orem. Um, um, he's a, a very interesting figure um, in the history of thought uh, that I, I don't know a, a lot about, but um, there's a mention here that he comes up with um, the idea of of coordinates, which are, of course, hugely important in uh, the analysis of motion, the sort of modern conception of motion. Um, uh, and the, there's this, so the, the idea of coordinates, of course, like you probably remember this from like high school algebra, um, but you, you assign uh, an X value and a Y value and you um, uh, to whatever property you're, you're trying to measure. Uh, and then you, um, you have a graph where um, the x values are along one axis and the y values are on the other axis, and then you plot the the points um, where of those x and y values, and this allows you to um, 
to, for example, to take the motion of a projectile and draw its trajectory um, as a, a curve um, on the page. So something that um, previously was only experienceable through time where you could see the projectile, uh, the arrow or whatever flying through the air. Now you can plot it onto a page and, and see the whole trajectory in one, uh, in one glance, in one instant. So it's transforming time into space essentially. Um, and, and this allows you to, um, to sort of manipulate that trajectory and, and ask questions, you know, how, what, how high, what's the maximum point that this trajectory reaches? Um, you know, how long does it take to go from one point to another? Uh, and, and what's the angle of the trajectory and so on? Um, so it's, it, it allows for all sorts of manipulation. It's, it seems very simple. Like we, we teach it to, um, to kids in high school or even earlier, uh, nowadays, but it takes like this complete, um, uh, you have to have a completely different um, sort of grasp of what motion is before you can even start to come up with this idea of graphing a motion uh, uh, in relation to coordinates like this. I know that the focus in this section was on the movement from an Aristotelian notion of motion to the uh, modern one, but also this idea of um, a kind of Cartesian space is a huge departure, obviously, from the Aristotelian notion of place, uh, which is like the, it's hard for me to wrap my head around, but it's like the inner inner limit of the outer, like the basically the cosmos with respect to a thing. So they're like, I don't think that Aristotelian physics would admit of the possibility of, uh, of something like Cartesian coordinates. Yeah. Right. Uh, so in Aristotelian physics, yeah, the central notion is place. Uh, and um, so the place of an entity is like, as you said, is the limit that surrounds the entity. So like uh, if you have a square uh, or a, a cube, say um, the place of the cube is like the, the rest of the universe with like a, a space for that cube um, surrounding that cube. Um, and then you, you can sort of... Um, uh, the, and then these places for entities, there are sort of natural places, of course, where the entities are, are where they belong uh, or where they uh, sort of tend towards. Um, so stones are on the ground, fire is up in the air or up in the sky, um, etc. cetera. Um, uh, and then there are unnatural places after entities have been, have been moved by uh, an agent of some kind. Um, uh, and there's no there's no real notion of space as such as as this uh, and in particular there's no notion of the void. Um, Aristotle is explicitly against the notion that there is an empty space or a void. Uh, so everything, the whole universe is full um, of something. Everything is in a place, and that place is an entity, uh, is not nothing. Um, so it's a completely different conception of. Um, the order of the world so there's no such thing as empty space in which entities are there's a a whole um sort of network of places that are um filled with entities of various kinds um and so this has to be completely transformed just to have this notion of a uh, a graph with cartesian coordinates um like you have to you have to sort of grasp space as being this um uh, framework in which entities are located by in relation to these coordinates, these mathematical entities, as opposed to being uh, in places that are concrete um, entities in which uh, other entities are found. 
so yes, it's it's definitely a a, a huge transformation of uh, the concept of uh, like you can't even say a transformation of the concept of space because Aristotle doesn't really have a concept of space, but it's a, a translation from from the concept of a place to a concept of space um, that that uh, is sort of goes along with the transformation of the notion of motion. Uh, and those those two transformations are are sort of um, uh, coordinate transformations. They 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 happen together and they sort of reinforce each other. I can read uh, the cards. Uh, should I just read this whole thing? I know it's kind of long, but it um, seems to me like it kind of reads itself a lot. But yeah, let's sure. let's do one one page or so, um, just because okay. it is a bit long. Um, so yeah, like we'll do a page and then stop, and then we'll do the rest. Okay, Meister Eckhart. With Eckhart, the mystical movement of the 14th century seemingly leads to a very different vision of individual reality. Nevertheless, the same paradox remains there as well. In a certain sense, finite and individual creatures endowed with a veritable reality cannot exist outside God in the same sense as divine reality. For individuality is a pure accident, a nothingness. Suppress this nothingness, all creatures are one. Unquote. Individual destiny can thus be consummated only in unification with God, which, for the individual, is a complete and radical decentering, and yet this decentering is merely the suppression of a nothingness. It does not remove anything from the individual already considered from the point of view of what it will become. This decentering only seems to remove something from the individual if it is considered as initially given in its entirety, i.e., when it exists as a separate being, it is determined as the member of a species. As the member of a species, the individual is separate from the, from other individuals because individuality qua separation is all that remains to the individual when the species has already been loaded. The problem of individuality is anterior to that of individuation, since it consists in asking which part of reality belongs to the species and which part to the individual. It is only when this problem is answered that one can ask how the reality of the species, if the species is the bearer of a significant part of reality, fragments into individuals due to a principle of individuation. But at the level of the first problem, the metaphysical dilemma, individual or species, may be refused. One can imagine a primordial existence of the individual outside any species. The individual is then no longer merely individuated species, but directly and primarily being. In this sense, the particular being that is the individual is not fundamentally distinguished from the unique and universal being that is divinity. The former is only distinguished from the latter in an essential and ancillary manner. Consequently, the individual may discover its veritable reality by stripping away its particularity and that which constituted its division from other particular beings. And this discovery is not an impoverishment, but a deepening of the discovery of a definitive and fully real state. The primordial reality of the individual was not to be distinguished and separate, but to be. The individual is something of being, and it wants to become the being. To abandon limitation in particularity is not to abandon reality, but to eliminate the primordial illusion. In that case, this individual, which possesses with within it something of being from the moment of the first act of reflection, must not seek the mediation of the species or group to discover within it the absolute reality that will annihilate this nothingness that its particularity is. Uh, does this <coughs> particularity itself possess a reality? This is difficult to answer. It can only be acknowledged that this initial isolation of the individual is within it like the negative sign of the fact that its reality is not to belong to a species or group. The individual's particularity protects it from the illusion of the individuated species. It is easier to go from the particular being than the individual that the individual is to the absolute being than from the individual's relative situation 
in the specific group to the real position facing the absolute. I guess one thing I find interesting about this philosophy is that the this idea that individuality is nothing, but there is a kind of positivity to this nothing in the sense that it allows the individual to go from its particularity to a kind of unity with the divine. Yeah, this this um, section is a little bit more obscure than some of the previous ones, just in part because the um, the author that we're discussing here was a, a mystic and not a philosopher. Um, so he's um, necessarily not going to be as uh, straightforward to interpret as, as a philosophical doctrine. Um, but yeah, so there's this notion that the individual is a kind of nothingness, um, or the individuality of the individual is a kind of nothingness. Um, and what is real in the individual is precisely God. Um, so uh union with God is is a kind of disappearance of the individuality of the individual. Uh, but this disappearance is not something, is not a, a loss of something. So it's not the case that um, the individual has to sort of sacrifice its reality to to unite with God. Um, it's, it's actually um, by um, sort of eliminating this illusion of, of separation from God, uh, the individual actually achieves... Um, uh, a greater reality or or reaches this greater reality that it is God um, uh, precisely by by eliminating this illusion of separation from God. Uh, and then, yeah, so, so Simon Dome himself um, sort of recognizes that this doctrine is kind of difficult to interpret when he asked, you know, does this particularity itself possess a reality? And, and his answer, or what he says here, is that this is difficult to answer. Um, so he's sort of acknowledging that this um, uh, that Eckhart is difficult to interpret in philosophical terms because he's not a, a philosopher. He's not um, setting out a systematic doctrine of the individual, but he's instead uh, a mystic who's trying to um, uh, sort of capture this experience of union with God. And I think, uh, and then we'll, we'll see more on this as we continue with this section. But I think. Um, Imondon wants to treat Eckhart as um, sort of continuing the same sort of uh, theory of the individual as we found with um, Buridan and um, uh, what was the other guy's name? Um, uh, no, yeah, it was, it was Buridan. Um, anyway, this this doctrine of the, the sort of decentering of the individual um, is this um, sort of uh, Decentering uh, the anti-anthropomorphism uh, or anti-anthropocentrism um, uh, is sort of continued here with Eckhart in the sense that um, uh, Eckhart treats the the human individual as uh, a kind of nothingness uh, and um, wants to eliminate the illusion of the separation of the individual from from reality in the same way that um, in the uh, physics of impetus we we sort of um, Treat the the realm of, of motion that we're that we're familiar with as a, a kind of illusory reality, um, which is separate from the uh, potentially very different reality of the entities in motion through impetus. So it's it's definitely a surprising comparison um, that you know the sort of origins of modern physics and um, this 14th century mysticism have a, a sort of convergence in. Um, 
decentering the individual and uh, sort of treating the individual as something uh, illusory. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read, let's see. Uh, yeah, this is quite long. Um, I'll read another page and then we'll stop there. Passage is possible from the particular absolute to the absolute of divine reality, whereas the relativity of communal existence and collective operations, giving themselves as an absolute, forever encloses the particular being that the individual is within their relativity. The individual is closer to the absolute in the solitude of its particularity than in the relativity of earthly existence. The negative characteristic of the individual's isolation is therefore that due to which there is something absolute about the individual. At the level of individual reality, this isolation is a condition of the absolute. The limited being can be absolute only in isolation. The nothingness of individual isolation is not at all something of the being, but it preserves the being enclosed in this particularity that the individual is from the relativity of a communal existence taken as a final goal. This is how the, that is how this paradox of individuality can be partially elucidated. Pure nothingness can have value as a condition of access to the absolute. What the individual abandons when he approaches the divine state is the nothingness that envelops individual particularity. This is the explanation for the functional importance of this nothingness and all of the negotiations associated with individual particularity. Individualities are not endowed with a veritable reality insofar as they are separate, but they contain an eminent reality as the starting point for a movement toward being, which is spiritual advancement. The reality of the individual is a reality in the individual according to the stages of a dynamism that begins with the individual. It is starting from the individual that the soul can become separate and be informed in God become convinced by the nobility and purity of divine nature. This fundamental attitude constitutes an ethics that becomes an integral part of the movement toward God. The more important rules define a state of the individual with respect to the world and itself, not an action vis-a-vis -vis the community. Poverty is the state of someone who knows nothing, who wants nothing, and who has nothing. Those who are truly poor are those who are completely separated from themselves and from other creatures. The poor are in a state in which individuality and non-individuality confront one another and coincide. They no longer even have the will to accomplish the will of God. They are in a state of complete passivity wherein they leave God to accomplish his work in them, as ready to suffer the torments of hell as to participate in the joys of beatitude. Virtues are not acquisitions of the soul, but the very being of the soul. Works qua works are nothing. Only the will from which they proceed has a value. The true work, the internal work that alone brings one closer to God, is the will unconcerned with any external success, a will that is consequently superior to any circumstance, to space and time, a will that can never be forestalled. Love is, is not the son of Poros and Penya, but of plenitude identical to God himself. The soul ensconced in this way back into its own depths, i.e. on the hither side of the states in which it has a limited and determined activity, finds complete freedom, does not need repeated and multiple contacts with the exterior milieu and the social milieu. The inferior activities of the soul are those that end in action. These are the will, reason, the understanding, the external senses. These activities are ordered and guided by the withdrawal of the soul into itself. So there's a sort of paradox that Simon Don points to here is that the individual as such, or the individuality of the individual is nothingness, is, is just an illusion. Uh, but uh, it's precisely through isolation of the individual and separation from communal existence that, um, that the individual can sort of um, realize that, that nothingness or... or um, uh, realize that the separation is an illusion. Uh, and so I think we can compare this isolation to what Simon Don says in volume one about this ordeal of solitude um, that is needed to sort of um, grasp the trans individual um, to, to have access to the trans individual. So there's, um, 
in the same way we have this sort of ordeal of solitude that the individual has to go through here to um, to sort of uh, let go of its individuality. So it's only in separation from communal existence that we can uh, actually um, give up our individual reality and find this union with God. Okay, so let's go on to the rest. Let's read the rest of the Eckhart section. Um, if someone else would like to read. Oh, I, I can do it. Uh, bef before before uh, reading, uh, maybe a simple question about like, uh, it's kind of like unclear still like a, a uh, relation between nothingness and the particular particularity. It's it's kind of in some parts like understandable, but at the same time, how nothingness can be, I mean, related to the particularity, right? Yeah, it's um, it's a difficult doctrine to sort of make sense of, um, and and this is sort of what Simondo calls the the paradox here is that um. It's precisely by isolating itself that the in, or isolating oneself that the individual um, comes to fully um, accept that nothingness that it is. Uh, so uh, this particularity of the individual is something that um, is is ultimately a nothingness. But um, in order to fully grasp that nothingness or to fully accept that nothingness, we have to sort of um, pass through the, the particularity of the individual. We have to um, isolate ourselves from the communal world uh, and, and sort of um, uh, only in that way can we, can we uh, fully accept the nothingness of the individual. Uh, so yeah, you're right. It's definitely difficult to understand, um, but yeah, it's, it's this sort of uh, conversion between, between the, the individual and union with God or there's nothingness of the individual that uh, that we have to sort of hold on to here. I try to, uh, maybe like we can find some kind of clue later on, but like uh, in terms of time and space, like um, when we live our life, we have a particularity, but uh, in throughout the human history, like we can be defined as a, like a nothing. Like, cause like, I mean, unless we become like a, like a, great figure in the history book but we are going to be uh no one so in that sense it's a kind of like a re regarded as nothingness and then but in particular time and space we can be marked as uh, our own particularity to someone to somebody maybe like a simon don't develop that idea at the end of the day like collective individuation i just just guess but random guess but maybe we can find some more ideas about this later on. Yeah, I think um, I think this notion of nothingness and particularity. Um, I think it, it's a bit different than it, um, the sort of historical relation. So yes, you're right that um, in the you know long run of history, each of us ends up being a sort of nothingness. Um, that uh, you know, ten thousand years from now, no one will know who any of us are. Um, but um, I think. I think the nothingness of the individual here is a nothingness in relation to God. Um, so um, the the being of each individual is really just the being of God. Um, it's only it's only um, at a level of sort of illusory appearance that each of us sees ourselves or or considers ourselves to be um, distinct from God, to be a, an entity that that is distinct from God, and so. 
uh, once we fully grasp or fully accept that we are um, that that our reality, the reality that we contain, is actually just God. That there's nothing in us except for God. Uh, then that illusion disappears. We we sort of um, we achieve this union with God, um, not as if we were sort of one entity that that unites with another entity, but by um, by sort of overcoming the illusion that we were separated at all in the first place. Uh, and and so that's it, that's the sense of the uh, nothingness of the individual, that it's this illusory nature of the individual. Oh, okay. Okay. In, in this time, it's a kind of impossible separate from God. Got it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, that, mm. that we, we sort of treat ourselves as separate from God, but this is an illusion. Uh, and, mm. and we have to overcome that illusion. All right. Thank you. So let me read it. Uh, such is the vision according to which the totality of the uh, diverse, the sum of all separate individualities, appears as the manif manifestation or uh, revelation of uh, deeper unity. Appearing as expression, the diverse is immediately neglect, uh, negated as diverse. The individual is known as reality only in its isolation from other individuals, which returns it to God and prevents it from being taken as an ultimate reality. The world does not find its meaning solely through its link with the other worlds of the phrase. For, for if a world has no meaning by itself, several worlds even more so, so uh, do not have meaning because they are several. Each of the words must, uh, words must have a meaning relative to the, to the thought it expresses for all the words to have a meaning. Context is the meaning and not in the other worlds. The context is in the thought and not in the addition of words. This method is applied to theology. It indicates that divinity of uh, uh, the Trinity is in the nature of the nature, while below this unparticipated unity that remains in itself. The three persons constitute the nature of the nature, the creation of the world, uh, and all the procession of the created things outside of God is still an expression of God. Under these conditions, this creation is not strictly different in kind from the generation of the Son by the Father. The Son indeed expresses the thought of the Father, which himself, the absolute unity in which known and knower are identical. The Spirit unites the Father and the Son. Each thing has its eternal being in God, including the world. A word. Creation is in this temporal act, through which God has expressed himself in his Son. Each individual existence of each creature in a determined time and space cannot be conceived as a result of positive act of God. The find existence of things outside God, the diversity that separates them, can only be conceived as a nothingness and a deficiency. A deficiency. Just like in the theory of Plotinus and St. Augustine, over is a simple deficiency and a defect linked to this diversity. The function of the individual soul is the knowledge of the primordial unity of creatures, the depth of the soul. The fun uh, funke is the synthesis, place wherein every creature discovers its unity. Knowledge is the value of a being. It is the transmutations of things themselves in their return to God. Christ then uh, Christ then becomes a model more than a redeemer 
over Adam's sin. He is a model of a perf the perfect union of God and creature. Even without Adam's sin, this incarnation would have taken place. Christ is the guide of souls, whereby the universe returns God. The aspect of Christian doctrine, the subordinate individual individual life to a historical tradition, to jurid juridical and sacramental institutions becomes inessential. This doctrine uh, was disseminated by Jonas Toller, Henry Susu, and John Van Ruybroek, for whom the quality of God surpasses all creatures. Despite the extreme differences between the academic doctrine of the alchemists and the mystical doctrine of the Eckert, the conception of the individual implies the common postulate. It is not necessary to pass through the species to know the individual. This individual is the solid basis for acting for and for knowing outside any natural or institutional group. Reality is to be thought in individual interiority, not in traditional group institutions. Whatever the ultimate uh, reality or necessary starting point, the individual must be grasped in its isolation. By being particular, it holds something absolute. There is no natural place for alchemists, just as there is no validity of the tradition and the sacraments for Eckhart. The planet is moved by the its impetus, just as the soul is carried pulled God by itself. Oh, aha, clearer, yeah. Yeah, this, this part helps um, make sense of what we were reading earlier. Um, mm. But yes, it's um, this sort of surprising convergence of the mystical doctrine of Eckhart with the uh, physical doctrine of impetus that we saw earlier um, and with um, the conceptualism of Occam. Uh, so there's this sort of um, turn towards, it's, it's sort of paradoxical as, as Simon Dome recognizes, but um, by treating the individual as a, a nothingness or as an illusion, um, in Eckhart, we, we sort of end up um, privileging the individual uh, sort of experience, the, the individual mystical experience, this inner experience of union with God, um, as opposed to the external reality of the church and the sacraments and so on. Uh, so all of that is sort of um, treated as uh, unnecessary and, and um, kind of a distraction, really. Uh, and it's ultimately this individual union with God that is uh, important. Uh, and um, yeah, so this, this is part, uh, we can see this um, transition or this introduction of this mystical notion in the 14th century as a sort of um, as a sort of uh, prefiguring of the Cartesian turn towards the individual, um, so we have uh, all these different strands that are sort of converging towards Descartes in, in uh, you know in the 14th century, leading up to the 15th century, and then uh, uh, eventually to to Descartes in the in the 17th century. Um, so we have the transformation in the notion of of uh, space and place. We have the transformation of uh, the notion of motion. We have this turn towards the inner experience of the individual. Um, and we have this um, sort of epistemological turn that we saw a little bit earlier today. Um, and so all of these things are sort of leading up to or, or um, are part of what contributes to the, the beginning of modern philosophy uh, in the, the 
16th century or 17th century. See, this seems a lot like the doctrine of conversion that we saw in earlier medieval thought, but as you just noted, it seems like the difference here is the emphasis on the inner life, maybe. Yeah, I think it's this um, this sort of turn to the individual um, as as like uh, yeah. So in in this notion of conversion that we saw earlier, we had um, this idea that the the individual can have sort of an immediate access to God outside of the institutions of the church, uh, the sort of communal life of of the faithful. Um, but what we have here is this, um, I guess, the the sort of um, illusory nature of the the apparent world um, is is what's new with Eckhart, um, in the sense that um, we we have this sort of uh, realm of appearances that that uh, sort of takes shape or becomes separated from for the first time. Uh, this realm of appearances that we can sort of, um, that we pass through, uh, in, in, in searching for unity with God. Um, so the, the whole world of, uh, communal life, uh, and of, um, the insertion of the individual into that communal life is, is a kind of illusion, a kind of appearance that we have to get behind or get beyond to actually have union with God. Um, I think that's what Simon Don finds new in in Eckhart in in connection or in contrast to the uh, the earlier doctrines of uh, conversion. Okay, um, I think that's probably a good place for us to stop here um, because the next bit is a couple of pages. So um, we can pick up next time on the the section uh, from the Renaissance to the 17th century. Um, he he sort of skips over the Renaissance really. Um, he he doesn't mention much. Uh, but you know there there are important figures that he skips over like um, Bruno uh, Giordano Bruno uh, and Galileo um, who uh, sort of continue the transformation that we saw beginning here. But he sort of skips straight from the late medieval period to the early modern period and doesn't really talk about the Renaissance for whatever reason. Okay. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming out. Thanks for your contributions today and hope to see you next week.